0: If you would, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Titus, once again, Titus chapter 3. The last couple of weeks we've been looking at verses 1 and 2, and this morning we will consider verse 3. Titus chapter 3. We'll begin our reading at verse 1 and we'll read down to verse 7 but we'll be considering verse 3. Here again, God's wholly inspired and inerrant word. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. If you are here this morning as a genuine believer, a genuine Christian, I want you to know that it is very good for you and important for you at times to think about what life is like or what life would be like apart from Christ. I think this is a very important exercise for the Christian to undergo. What would you be like if God never saved you? What would you be doing right now if God had never had mercy on you, if He just passed you by? How different would your lifestyle be? How different would your behavior be? How different would your thinking be? if God hadn't opened your eyes to the truth. I think it is easy for us who are Christians, especially if we have been believers for a long time, to forget what it is like or what it would be like to be apart from Christ. I don't know that we think about that very much. It is very, very easy for us to get caught up in our own Christian bubble, in our own Christian world and become isolated and insulated from what it's like to be a part of the world. I know that happens to me quite often. Now our knowledge of such things will be very different. The testimony of our conversion is very different for every one of us. Some of us in this room can never remember a time when we did not love and know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a wonderful blessing. And that is what we pray for here at Grace and Truth for our covenant children and what we should be praying for and what a wonderfully advantageous position to be in. What a blessing. I am in that position. I know many of you in this room room are as well. And we ought to be so thankful for it. But others of you, however, may be able to remember what it is like to live and think apart from Christ, to be a rebel against God, to even hate God. What it is like to think and live like an unbeliever. You remember what it's like to be in the darkness and to love the darkness and to want to stay in the darkness. And it's in some ways, you especially can see more clearly the contrast between life outside of Christ and life in Christ. But I think that even for those of us who were converted when very young, we are still bad enough sinners to imagine what that would be like and to know what you might have been like apart from the saving work of Christ. Christ. And if we really take the time to think and meditate on these matters, not just about ourselves, but the condition of the lost world, words cannot describe the hopeless and depressing situation into which we have fallen as a human race. I remember when I was a lot younger, I think late teens, early 20s, thinking upon these things, studying these things, how at one point I was just overwhelmed by the consequences of sin in this life and how miserable our condition is. And I became very downcast and depressed to think about what our sinfulness has cost us and what has become of us. What a horrible, miserable, tragic condition mankind has fallen into. Even those who are in the world of unbelief acknowledge this and can see this. Thomas Hobbes, a famous secular philosopher, talked about how life is a war of every man against every man, and it is nasty and brutish and short. In the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, this question is asked, question 19... What is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? Answer, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Congregation, we need to be gripped with the reality of the lostness of our condition, of our hopelessness apart from Christ, and of what others are going to experience for all of eternity if they never believe in Him. One of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermons is titled, the title is powerful in itself, Wicked Men, Useful in their destruction only. And in that sermon, he argues that the ultimate purpose and end goal of men who are created and who live a fruitless, unbelieving life and who die in their sins is for them to bring glory to God in their everlasting destruction so that the great contrast can be seen between the wrath of God and the love of God, between the justice of God and the mercy of God. For every unbeliever who lives in this world and dies in unbelief, it would be better if they had never been born. It would be better if they had never been born. It would be better if they were created as an animal that just expires and goes into the ground again, but does not exist forever in hell's torments. That is very depressing. And we need to understand that it is depressing. And we need to, as Christians, even become depressed at times when we think about the lostness of mankind even now, the life of the unbeliever is most miserable. As it says in Proverbs 13:15, "The way of the unfaithful is hard." though it must be admitted that it is not always uh, keenly felt and experienced by them. They do not always see it that, that way, do they, or experience it all the time. But in the final analysis, they are most miserable. This is why even some of the most wealthy and famous people on earth end their own lives because they see the futility of it all. And therefore, congregation, may it really be impressed upon you this morning what life is like apart from Christ. To remember what you are like or to think about what you would be like if God did not have mercy on you. And in light of that, to, be, to take pity on those around you as you reflect on your own sinful condition. Well, as we will see this morning, this is precisely the goal of the Apostle Paul in the passage we have before us, to be reminded of what we have been delivered from, a life of deplorable sin and darkness. As we look again at the first part of Titus chapter 3, we are reminded that Paul is instructing the Christians on the island of Crete how they should conduct themselves in the world and in society in which they find themselves. Remember that in an earlier chapter, chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul, quoting the philosopher Epimenides, gave quite the negative view of what the Cretans were like as being always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. One could therefore see how it would be hard to live as a Christian in that culture. How it would be hard, as it says in verses two and three of, uh, uh, uh verses one, uh, verse two of Titus three, what we considered last week, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable and gentle and humble with such ruffians around them. Maybe you have been in situations where it was very hard to live as a Christian. And I know some of you children haven't really had the opportunity to experience this yet. You haven't really gone out on your own and left the home. But I can think about in my own past, when I was in a public school, it was hard for me to be a Christian. When I've worked, uh, especially in the trades with other people and the kind of people that you work around, it's difficult to live as a Christian. And we often have to encounter those kinds of conditions. But in order to help the believers in Crete to be the example and the testimony that they needed to be, Paul urges them to remember what they also once were, just like the unbelieving Cretans around them. The negative traits that we have before us in verse 3 probably really characterized the Cretans before they came to faith in Christ. There would have been many of them who would have been guilty of these sins we find in this list. They were not brought up in the faith. They were not covenant children raised in a covenant home. They were all new believers, recently converted through the evangelistic efforts of Paul and Titus. And they were just now coming out of sinful lifestyles, coming out of the darkness. And so Paul says to them to help them with their sanctification to help them to love the unlovely, to be patient and kind to the mean and the unthankful person, to be peaceable and gentle and humble to those who are unreasonable and full of spite and envy. He urges them to remember what they were once like, that they were no different from them at all except for God's grace. And you might recall that Paul does this similar thing in, in many of his other letters for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, "...do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor ad- homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus." And by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5 8. For you were once darkness, he writes, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He does this over and over again because most of the letters he wrote uh, to the churches he wrote to were people who were newly converted and just coming out of that darkness. And in a similar vein, Paul writes here to the, these Cretan believers that they are to be godly examples in the midst of a w- wicked world, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable and gentle and humble, for, he says in verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And the list what a list we have here that characterizes the unbeliever, that marks the life of the unbeliever. William Hendrickson has pointed out that while there are uh, seven positive traits mentioned of the believer in verses 1 and 2, or at least what the, the believer should be marked by, so we have seven negative characteristics or traits of the unbeliever. Now, You may say to yourself, when you look at this list, this seems a little extreme to characterize all unbelievers this way. I know some believers, you might say, that are not quite, not this, not this bad off. And yes, while it is true that some unbelievers are not as bad as others, and not all are guilty of the same sins, or or commit the same sins to the same degree, yet this is the underlying reality of the status quo of the unbeliever. Let God be true and every man a liar. The word of God is a mirror, as says James, whereby we look into it and see our own true nature, to see what we really are apart from the grace of God, restraining sin and wickedness. As Charles Erdman said, this is indeed a dark and pitiful picture of the Christless world. And so what we're going to do with our remaining time this morning is take a closer look at this list in more detail and seek to understand what life is like for the person who is apart from Christ. We will consider the nature of man, then we will consider what he serves, and finally how he lives. And this corresponds to the verse itself as it's laid out for us in the text, The verse says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived. There we have the nature of man given to us. Serving various lusts and pleasures. There it is what he serves. And then living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. There we have how he lives. First, the nature of man. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, and deceived. If one were to look for the doctrine of total depravity in the Scriptures, one need not much look, look much further than the verse we have before us this morning. For here we see the root of the utter lostness and the helplessness of man apart from God's grace. Men are naturally foolish. The majority of people on earth are not wise or clever, but as this word can also be translated, they are stupid. They haven't figured it out. They don't understand. Their mind cannot submit to God's word or law, and therefore they are fools before God. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We read earlier in Romans 1.22. Now in our culture, foolish is not such a terribly bad word. There are worse things to call people. We might tell someone, don't be foolish. Or we might tell our children, stop acting foolishly. But in the Bible, to be called a fool or foolish was a very severe condemnation. It was often the equivalent of telling someone that they are damned, that they are an unbeliever. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So he begins with this anger in the heart. And whoever says to his brother, Rekha shall be in danger of the council. He's referring there to the council of the Sanhedrin. Rekha was an Aramaic word that meant uh, an empty-headed person, and it was expressive of indignation and contempt. It was a very harsh word to say to another another person. But then he says, But whoever says, You fool shall be in danger of hell fire. I remember reading that for the first time years ago and thinking, well, that's not so bad. But you see, in Scripture, to be called a fool is, to mean, you're telling them they're a wicked, reprobate man. And by this, you show that you hate your brother. And what does John tell us in 1 John? He who hates his brother is not in the truth. He does not truly know the Lord and love him. And so that's why they're in danger of hell fire, you see, Therefore, it was a very strong denunciation when Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3:1, "O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth." They had begun to think and act like unbelievers, and he was giving them a scathing rebuke, probably the strongest we find in, in, in Paul's writings. They were on the verge of apostasy. And he's saying, are you lost now? Are you an unbeliever seeking to be justified by works? Have you cast off the gospel? Now the word for foolish in our passage in Titus is anoatos. And it can also be translated as thoughtless or unwise. And this is especially with regard to spiritual matters. The word literally is not thinking or without thinking. It it combines the the verb to think, noieo, with the word, which is just the letter A, for not or without, not thinking or without thinking. It refers to either to a lack of spiritual discernment or not reasoning through a matter with proper logic. And both, of course, are true of the unbeliever. Now, God has made us rational beings with the capacity for reason and logic, but it has been corrupted by the fall, and many in the world are unwilling to follow the logic that leads to God. And by the way, true logic, good logic, does lead inevitably to the existence of God, But man's reason will only go so far, unless and until, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And of course, we can think of many examples of foolishness in our society. How people exchange the truth of God for the lie. How people exalt the life of an animal to to, to the status of a human being. How they easily accept evolution and it makes sense to them that something can come out of nothing, which is a logical impossibility, but they're not willing to grip with that. They're not willing to accept that truth. You see, they're not willing to reason to God. Much that takes place in the public school system is a reflection of such foolish thinking. The unbeliever we know is glaringly inconsistent. All you have to do is watch the news to see that. And of course, we could think about Nabal, where in 1 Samuel 25, which we read earlier, and how Nabal was completely unreasonable. In that text, it says he was harsh and evil, and his own servant said no one can speak to him. He's unreasonable. And of course, we can fall prey to foolishness as well when we're not willing to reason and think logically and be reasonable. And sometimes we become foolish in our thinking because what leads to the truth is too scary for us or it costs us too much, you see. And so we have to guard ourselves against any kind of foolishness. But the unbeliever is particularly marked uniquely by such foolishness. Mankind is also naturally disobedient. Not only is he foolish, but he's disobedient. Disobedient to the warnings of conscience, disobedient to God's law and His Word, most importantly of all, and disobedient to every kind of established authority, including parents and civil authority. The word is apithes, and it refers to one who is disobedient because they will not be persuaded of what is important to God. This word means they're disobedient because they cannot be persuaded of what is important to God. The word persuade, pitho, is in this word. They simply are not persuaded of the importance of what they are told to do, and so they do not obey. And isn't that not so often the case? We don't think that certain laws or rules or regulations really are all that important or need to be followed, and so we don't follow them. And maybe sometimes even your children, you children have thought about some of the rules of your parents, and you've thought to yourself, well, that's not that important. That's not that serious. And perhaps you've disagreed with them, or maybe even argued with them about what they have told you to do. You don't think that it is all that important to brush your teeth every day or to eat the the vegetables on your plate or to go to bed at a certain time or to do your homework and so on. And so you have been disobedient to them because in your mind that's not all that important. But children, you need to be careful that you aren't disobedient like the children of the world are disobedient because they are utterly lost. And they see no reason they can't be persuaded of what is important to God. It's important to God that you obey your parents, and that is a reason enough to obey them. In that long list of vices that we read earlier from Romans chapter 1, in the midst of that list, I won't read the whole list again, but in verse 30, that list continues, and Paul writes, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. It's terrible sin. And often where this leads, as children get over living disobedient lives, Is terrible. I don't know if any of you saw in the news recently about this one teacher. And there was a a high school, and there was this thing. It was a seventeen-year-old student, and his Nintendo Switch was taken away from him. And later, he found the teacher and he attacked her and he beat her up and knocked her unconscious. I mean, it was it, it. It's terrible. It's terrible. And if you see that, I'm telling you, that person, that person should be put to death. He should be put to death for the way he attacked that teacher. Exodus 21, 15 says, Whoever strikes father or mother shall surely be put to death. That's where disobedience can lead. But to be sure, the unbeliever is marked by disobedience. Even when they appear submissive on the outside, or sitting down, as the saying goes, on the outside, they are often rebellious and standing up. On the inside. Interestingly, this word is also used several times in the Old Testament for hardness of heart or rebellion of heart. Mankind is also naturally deceived. He's foolish, he's disobedient, and he is deceived. The majority of men and women and children in the world are completely unaware of what real life is all about. They're, they're unaware of, that real life is lived with an awareness of God in the presence of God, of who God is and of His plan for the world, and that He is their creator. And even where there is a professed belief in God and adherence to a religion, even then, most are still deceived, whether they're atheists or religious And some of those who are deceived, the worst are in pseudo-Christian religions like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses and, yes, Roman Catholicism. But so, so many do not realize that they will shortly be swept into eternity and that their eternal destiny is hell apart from Christ. How different would their life be if they were aware of this, if they knew that this was coming, if they knew this was going to happen to them? How they would do all in their power to be delivered from a wretched place. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 says that even where the gospel has been proclaimed, the the, the God of this world, the God of this age, Satan has blinded their minds and he has a veil over their eyes. Most in the world have no idea what is really going on. No idea what life is really all about. They don't know why they exist. There was um, a movie that I saw years ago, and I can't, I don't know if I can commend it to you. I think it was only PG, but it was called The Truman Show. And the main actor was living life. In the midst of all of these people, but he had no idea that everybody else in the world was watching him as like a a television show. And he was living life, but he was totally unaware of what was going on around him, of actually the reason and the purpose for his existence, you see. And that's like the unbeliever. They're like Truman. They have no idea. And they're totally deceived. The word for deceive in our text is planao. It means to deviate from the correct path or to go off course. And thus, it's often translated to wander or to be led astray. And it usually involves uh, being led astray because of sin. The word planao is where we get the word planet, which means a wandering body. Planao, planet. It's a wandering body out there in space. This word is also used several places in the Old Testament in various contexts. For example, it's used of Joseph in Genesis three thirty seven fifteen. You remember where he, Joseph was looking for his brothers? It says, Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? See, so he was just wandering about. That's this word. It's also used in Genesis 21.14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, that's Hagar's shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar. You remember this is where Ishmael was mocking Isaac and they're, they're sending them out, out, of the, out and away. He gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. She was out there not knowing where to go wandering around in the wilderness. And just like Hagar, most people on earth are wandering around aimlessly, without the truth, with no purpose in life, with no moral compass. Mankind is foolish, disobedient, and deceived with everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Which leads us to consider, secondly, what mankind serves according to our text, what his nature is and what he serves. Again, our text says, "...for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures." Not only is man foolish and disobedient and deceived, but he is also enslaved to sin. He is a slave in bondage to his sinful lusts and desires. The word in our passage for lust is epithumia. It can also be translated as desires or passions... And it refers to a passionate longing or passion built on strong feelings or urges. This word is strongly connected to the sensual appetites of the body or the flesh. And of course, the unbeliever takes great delight in fulfilling whatever passionate longings he or she has. There might be some outward restraints put on him by society, There may be some occasional feelings of guilt and pangs of conscience. But other than that, he loves to fulfill whatever sensual desires he may have. And not only that, but takes great joy and delight in them. The word for pleasures in our text is hedone. It's where we get the word hedonism, hedonism is the unrestrained pursuit of pleasure. Hedoné refers to what is pleasurable or enjoyable to the natural physical senses as well. But hedoné in particular refers to the satiation of bodily desires at the expense of other things and makes pleasure an end in itself. Thus the unbeliever pursues such pleasure at whatever cost to himself or cost to others around him. And it becomes his God. The unbeliever seeks to please himself above all else, and he makes pleasure an idol. The sins most commonly associated with lustful desires and pleasures are, of course, sexual sins of various kinds, like adultery and fornication, and especially in our day, the use of pornography. Also, gluttony and drunkenness and partying and drugs. There are actually many pleasures in this life that one can pursue. Our text says various lusts and pleasures. And that word various actually means many-colored. That word various is the same word referred to Joseph's coat of many colors in the Old Testament. There's all these (laughs) pleasures. And they look so beautiful as they appear to us. This beautiful garment that Joseph wore, all of these colors, and they see all these delights and all these pleasures, and they're attracted to them. And they make it the focus of their life to please themselves by them. The Apostle Peter refers to this kind of sensual living in 1 Peter 4.3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Our society today is becoming very much a hedonist society. Sexual immorality is rampant, and young people are sleeping around with whoever, whenever they want to, without being able to see the horrible consequences of their sins. And those in authority do very little to nothing about this. Doctors and psychologists often even encourage such licentious behavior and would suggest that we should give in to our desires and not suppress them. But congregation, we know the truth of the damaging effects of these sins. And we must do our utmost to guard ourselves against the desire for sinful pleasures and to protect our children and to guide our children in these matters. Parents, don't be naive. Know what your children are looking at online. Children, as you get older, and especially when you are out on your own and you will have more freedoms to do the things that you want to do and would like to do. And I must admit, when I first left home, I just, I loved it. I felt so free to be my own person, have my own responsibilities, make my own schedule. That's important. We mature into that freedom. But with that freedom comes great responsibility to use your body as a vessel for honor and not dishonor. Learn to say no to sinful pleasures now with God's help, or they may get the better of you later in life. The word for pleasures in our text is also used in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. You remember the parable of the sower? Jesus is the one sowing the seed. The seed is the word of God, and it and some seed falls on the wayside, and some seed falls on the rock, and some seed falls among the thorns. And when it falls among the thorns, Luke 8.14, Jesus says this, Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life. And bring no fruit to maturity. Children, don't allow, when you get older, the pleasures of this world to choke your ability to live for the Lord. And I want to remind us all, because this is very important, that God does want us to experience great pleasures in this life. God is not opposed to pleasure. God experiences pleasure far greater, far more wonderful than any of us ever have. He created us to have pleasure. There is such a thing as Christian hedonism. At God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore, says the psalmist in Psalm 1611. And God wants us to enjoy the pleasures of this life, eating and drinking and sexual fulfillment, but only in the right context and in moderation and in the way that is safest for us and in the way that is the most pleasurable for us, you see. He wants us to enjoy these things in Him. And He wants us to take pleasure in Him most of all, which is the greatest pleasure that can be experienced. Isn't that something? Jesus, the God-man, came to this earth and he never indulged in any sexual pleasures because there was a pleasure far greater. And this idea that somebody could have pleasure in God, the unbeliever knows nothing of. He knows nothing about this. Do you? He can't conceive it. He can't understand it. As one of my professors at seminary said, it's hard to live the Christian life and pursue the pleasure of holiness when you have no taste for it. The unbeliever has no taste for such things. It is an acquired taste, acquired only by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes Christianity unique, different from all the other religions, is that God actually comes and gives you a desire and a taste for the things of God. And you say, yes, I love God. I want to please Him. I want to serve Him. I don't want to sin against Him. That no person can make make themselves do. The unbeliever thinks he is most free when he is the most indulgent in his sinful, passionate desires. But he is actually at that moment in the greatest bondage. Paul writes in Romans 6 20 and 21 For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That means there was no righteousness in you. You only had sin, you only could sin. You are slaves of sin. You are free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The unbeliever is completely enslaved and spiritually dead while he lives, which leads us to consider thirdly and finally how he lives, his nature, what he serves, and how he lives according to our text. Again, our verse states, "...for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another." Not only is the unbeliever foolish, disobedient, and deceived, not only does he serve his various lusts and pleasures, but he also lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating others." I want to make a comment about the word for live in this verse because it's unique. It's not the typical word for live you find in the New Testament. This word is diago. It's only used two times. The word live, it's only used two times in the New Testament. And it means to pass the time or spend the time or spend one's life in a certain way. The only other time this word is used is in 1 Timothy 2. And I'll read verses 1 and 2. This is a very familiar passage to us. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That idea of leading your life, leading a quiet and peaceable life, that life that is led, that's the word from our text. And God's word says that the unbeliever's life is led first and foremost by malice, in malice. Malice or kakia refers to a wicked or vicious disposition. It is the underlying principle of inherent evil which is present even if it is not outwardly expressed. Let me say that again. It's the underlying principle of inherent evil which is present even if it is not always outwardly expressed. The same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where we read these familiar words just before the flood. Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness... That's our word translated malice. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what that word means. That's the definition of it right there. I know that wickedness can come across as a strong word, but every unbeliever is wicked. It is the underlying principle which drives him and which motivates him. His every thought and his every action comes from a principle of inherent evil. And this wickedness can often manifest itself And one of the worst forms of evil in society, and that is envy. The unbeliever is dominated by wickedness and can often live in perpetual envy. The word for envy, phthonos, refers to being glad when someone experiences misfortune or pain. Envy is displeasure at another's good. Envy can be so deep and far-reaching that it often doesn't even desire to be raised up to the level of the one who is envied, but only wishes to bring the other person down to their level. So it's not jealousy. Oh, I wish I could be like them and be in their position. No, I would rather them come down to my level. I don't want them to have what, I, want them to have what they have, you see. The root of the word for envy, pharaoh literally means to decay or break down or waste away. That's the root of the word. That's what that word means. Envy will eat away at a person and will consume their life like nothing else. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Jealousy and envy are in some ways related, but they are not by any means the same thing. Jealousy involves usually the fear of losing what one already has or could have. So you're thinking about yourself and losing what you have or could have. Envy, however, hates to see another person have something. You see, our God is a jealous God because He's jealous for us, but He is never envious. Love never envies, 1 Corinthians 13.4. And the theme of envy runs deep in the scriptures and is directly tied to the Savior's death. I think one thing that the, the, the crucifixion is marked by, what sin, more than any other, that put Jesus on the cross, when you read the Gospels, they were envious of him. They envied him. That's why they did it. William Hendrickson says this, It was envy which caused the murder of Abel. It was envy which threw Joseph into a pit. It was envy that caused Korah and Dathan and Abiram to rebel against Moses and Aaron. It was envy that made Saul pursue David. It was envy that gave gave rise to the bitter words which the elder brother said to his father in the parable of the prodigal son. And it was envy that crucified Christ. The world is full of malice and envy and hatred. The unbeliever is hated by others, and he himself hates other people. He is not an ounce of the love of God within him. The word hateful in our text, stugetos, is a little bit misleading. It's only used here in the New Testament. And there's many ways that you can translate it, but it means detestable, disgusting, abominable, despicable, repulsive, or odious. This is a description of how the unbeliever is viewed by others and by God. And so instead of it saying hateful, it really is better translated being hated, as the NIV has it, or hated by others, as the ESV has it. He is hated by others and hating one another. What a deplorable condition man is in. What a miserable condition. The life of unbelief is a veritable hell on earth. This is the way of the world. This is life without Christ. And congregation, this would describe each and every one of you if the grace of God had not rescued you. We would experience this hell on earth ourselves. But Christ has experienced that hell on the cross in our place so that we would not live in such a way George Whitfield said when he saw a criminal on the way to the gallows there but for the grace of god go i he looked at this man this criminal who is ready to die for his sins there but for the grace of god go i that ought to be the heart cry of every one of you therefore congregation let us remember what we have been delivered from, let us remember that our common humanity has all been caught, cut from the same cloth, and that we have all Adam and Eve as our first parents, and that in ourselves we are just as wicked and evil as the most hated man on earth, apart from the grace of God. And may the knowledge of this truth humble us as we seek to win others to Him, that they might also come to know and experience the grace that we have received. Let's pray together. Dear gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we're so thankful, O Lord, for the grace that you have shown to us in our miserable condition. You have scooped us up and you have taken us to yourself. O Lord, may we feel the weight of this lostness before you saved us. And Lord, may a knowledge of our own sinfulness be a motivation to reach others for the Lord, to humble us, to realize that it's only by your grace that we are different from anyone else. Lord, we pray, use us to be a testimony and a light, and may we be ever more thankful for the grace that you've extended to us when we think about the lostness of man's condition, what life is like without Christ. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.